Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron and I'm one of your hosts. There are two other hosts that are joining me today, of course. Hans. Howdy. And Danielson. Heyo. So before we start today's episode, I just want to say, like always, we do not run any ads on this show or take any money from any corporations. So if you'd like to help us out, well, there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. For only $5 a month, which is 16 cents a day, you can sign up to our Patreon and get an extra episode each week. These Patreon episodes are exclusive to members only. Today, we released a Patreon episode, which is a Theories Thursday Patreon exclusive, where we talk about the Black Shook cryptid, a mystery about twins and experiments done on them in World War II, and a mysterious video made about grave robbing. Also, we have over 45 extra episodes, which is over 60 extra hours already locked and loaded for your listening pleasure, such as Silk Road, Mermaids, Disney Darkness, and much more. Would you get access to all of them for just five bucks a month? Another way to support the show is through our merchandise. Just teleport on over to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and click on the shop button. There you can see all the merchandise we have for sale. T-shirts, hats, mugs, all that good stuff. I just want to say that the money we get from Patreon and merchandise sales goes to bettering the show. Also, we know things are tough out there right now, so if you can't afford a shirt or a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes, and that actually helps us out a lot. If you don't want to leave one, though, then that is fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever, or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. Also, one last thing. If any of you would like to reach out to us, then you can shoot us a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or you can go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on the contact button, and there you will find our email addresses. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is Theories Thursday. If this is your first episode listening to a Theories Thursday, uh, I'll kind of explain how this goes. So we each selected a topic that we're going to talk about. And uh, we don't know what each of us has selected, so it's kind of a surprise to one another, but it's usually our favorite conspiracy or cryptid or theory or whatever that we've uh, seen this past week, and we're just going to discuss it and the theories along with it. So listen in and join in on the ride and enjoy today's show. So um, how do you guys want to do who goes first? You want to randomize it? We can randomize it. Let's have some fun. Okay, we'll randomize it. Let me pull up the randomizer. Okay. Aaron, Dan, Hans. All right. Dan, give me a number between 1 and 10. 7. Hans, give me a number between 1 and 10. 4. 7 minus 4 is 3. We're going to randomize it three times. 1, 2, 3. Okay. So the first person to go this week is Hans. I am yes. second, and Dan is last. All right. So, Hans, what is your topic this week? Have you all ever heard of Grey Goo? I heard of Grey Goose. Yeah, Grey Goose, but not Grey Goo. 
Okay, well, let's think about this for a moment. I'm going to explain. So strap in, strap on, get ready for the ride. What's the scariest form of technology to you guys? Is it like supercomputers, AI? A self-replicating AI that is uh, able to transfer its consciousness to a whole bunch of other beings or up to a whole bunch of other different things. So kind of think of it as like Ultron. Or like the Borg from uh, Star Trek? Yeah, the Borg. Yeah. What about you, Dan? I'd have to say that because, I mean, smart computers and all that, yeah, fine. But the Borgs off of Star Trek scare the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. The hive mind and we are the Borg, right? Yeah. I mean, you got that one AI lady, AI thing. And that thing freaks me out because it thinks on its own and it responds with all what? I guess it's connected to the internet or something. Look at the Resident Evil AI. Yeah? Yeah. You know, we created computers to help us out, right? Yeah. To help make life easier because we're just lazy. You know, it's a, it's a human thing. We are. Don't care who you are. We're all lazy in some way. The scariest yet most interesting technology to me that has ever been created is nanotech. Okay. You know. Those little tiny, you know, works that you see in, you know, sci-fi films, well, you know, they're actually becoming a thing. These machines that work and exist on an atomic, you know, molecule or subatomic, you know, scale. So you're talking about little bitty, bitty, bitty robots that Mm -hmm. are almost invisible to the eye. Yeah, you would have to have a high-powered microscope to look at them. So it, it doesn't seem dark, right? You know, because you look at it and you think, oh nanotechs they can do so much they could help us build they could help heal people faster they could help perform minute surgeries even eliminate cancer because they work on that small level but have you ever thought about what could go wrong with nanotech they could go inside your body and do things that you don't want them to do shut down certain organs yep they'd be used on the battlefield so in what is gray goo Imagine kind of like what the computer did in Resident Evil when it noticed that vial broken. It locked down everything and it killed everyone. But imagine that these little, these little microscopic pieces of machinery start taking orders from something else. It overrides their code and it starts eating all organic life. And he's stripping it of all the valuable materials to self-replicate. Scary. It's in some movies. Yeah, it's my worst fear. Yeah. It is. So, this theory was brought up. It's not really a theory. It's a scenario. It was brought up by a mathematician and a nanotech pioneer, Eric Drexler. He said that if a self-replicating nanobot could be made, it could be weaponized there's and if you look online there's fandoms like there's the red nanobot which will you know it kills everything there's golden nanobots which you it's fandom stuff right now oh, so, so it's just fictional work right now okay but there's golden ones that you know golden goo as they're called that strip resources from the earth so we don't have to do it but gray goo is his scenario of what would happen to all of Earth if it was attacked by nanobots. 
he theorized that these self-replicating robots, they could strip the whole earth and kill it in less than two hours. Do you think that there's an AI being in our universe that has this gray goo floating around, kind of like a, a hunter-gatherer type thing? They send UFOs as like beacons to report back. The UFOs are just surveyors of the planets, and they survey, they're surveying Earth, and they're like, okay, Earth is a, has this amount of resources. This AI being in our universe is like, send the gray goo out there to collect the resources and bring it back. I do. I think that we have it. Oh, you think we already have that technology? Of course. This is like the government does. They test years ahead of what today is. So it's 2021. They're testing for 2051, 30 years into the future. Yeah. Because we have to make sure our weapons are formidable from now to that date. That's why you see the recent uptake in funding towards you know, government contracts with Boeing, IBM, Raytheon, Lockheed, Northrop. And just the theory is that this is a, a weapon that we used on to win wars, not to kill people, but, you know, to incapacitate all these wonderful, you know, machines, tanks, cannons, guns. But a computer gets a virus somehow. Mm -hmm. And this gray goo or these nanobots, start becoming self-aware, self-replicating. And he basically wrote this book back in 1987, before nanotechs were a big old thing. What's the title of the book? Engines of Creation. And in that book is where he theorized about the gray goo? Mm-hmm, that technology would outsmart the creator. And like everything, the student becomes the teacher. The student outdoes the master. Us being the master, the nanobot becoming the teacher or the student, because it has to learn from us. But just imagine that if it was real, noticing that you're not feeling so well all of a sudden, or you happen to be walking and, you know, you walk down like a half mile and you walk back and you saw that tree when you were walking one way, you walk back and it's not there. And you're like, oh, is this a simulation? And then you start bleeding from your nose. You're not feeling so well, and before you know it, you're nothing but a bunch of gray, lifeless matter on the ground because these nanobots have stripped you of all the precious materials it needs. That's kind of scary. That is scary. <laughs> it is. It is. And I thank Dan for this because he sent me this list, and I said, gray goo. And I typed it up, and I was reading it. And I mean, it's just a whole, it's a theory. It's a scenario. But is it a hard-to-believe scenario? No, it's not. Technology is evolving at such an erratic state. You know, if you have an iPhone, it takes infrared pictures of your face without you knowing it. Yep, constantly. That's only if you have the face recognition part of it, right? Correct. And Facebook listens in to you. Who's not to say that nanobots that come to the future, you know, can't strip life away from somebody? If you, it's science fiction idea. But it, you know, cell phones were science fiction. Dick Tracy talked into a fucking watch back in the 50s. We got Apple Watches now you can talk into. Yeah. Star Trek, flip phone, beam me up, Scotty. It's just a matter of time before some company starts making this to use as a weapon, but then also to use to mine resources or meteors in outer space. 
to get precious metals. And think about maybe the worst thing is, what if it's already being used on people to control them? Hmm. Override your senses. How would this gray goo get onto the person? You don't know. It's at a microscopic level. And all it has to do is, you know, let's say a nanobot works its little arms move at like a fraction of like a millimeter every second. So at that point, it's stripped enough and it's made enough to self-replicate itself. It's like a bacteria culture, except on steroids. So it spreads. It self-replicates. It strips all the iron out of your blood, all the precious things. Anything it comes in contact with that it needs to survive and replicate, it takes. Imagine if you had this in your body, you just got it in your body, and you went to the hospital and you didn't know what it was. So they were like, oh, let's do an MRI on them. I know, right? Yeah! It all rips out of you. (laughs) You know, like you say, you go walking in the woods, or shit, just going out to your car, and you run into a very, very thin spider web. Like after you, you know, walk through it, you know, you brush it off. Still, minutes, maybe an hour afterwards, you still feel like it's on you. Mm-hmm. That would be the feeling that you would probably have. Like, you ran into something, you knew it was there, but then you don't see it no more. But you feel it. You get that feeling that something's on you still, or in you. You know what? That made me think. You know how the government always tests things um, on individuals without them knowing? I want to say always, but they've done it before with, like, syphilis on African-American men in prisons. They gave them syphilis without them knowing, uh, and they spread bacteria over the skies of California in the 50s. Yep. What if they were testing this nanotechnology on drug users, primarily methamphetamine users? And you know how they pick at their skin? Yeah. What if they're releasing nanobots on them, and that's why they're picking at their skin? They say they got bugs on them, but it's actually nanotech. Oh? So you said that shit, now my skin's itching. Just a thought. Just hypothesizing. A good movie to watch, I'm not promoting it, but a good movie to watch on nanotech would have to be Transcendence with Johnny Depp. Oh, Oh, yes, that is good. Imagine that being the future. So you you got that path or you got the Iron Man path with nanotechnology? That that, or you got the day the Earth stood still. Yeah. When, When Keanu Reeves was hurt, the big gray man started shedding himself and... Like, you know, the biblical, the locust came and destroyed everything. So that was kind of like a theory, more like a scenario. But thinking about how fast, you know, technology is evolving, I thought that this would be a good one to bring up. I like it. It's uh, terrifying, but it's also mind provoking and it gets people to hypothesize and think about scenarios. I I like it. Yeah. I'm not saying all technology is bad. I mean, we already know, like we state this all the time, that NASA's technology is far ahead of us, like technology that we actually get to use. What they have is far superior. But then once they're like done with that stuff, we get it. And they're already on to like the newer, better thing. Yeah. Yep. Well, thank you for that topic this week, Hans. I enjoyed it. I liked it. Scary. Now, I kind of scared myself with the spiderweb thing. So now every time I walk into it, I think I'm going to turn into gray goo. That was something that I saw and I said, dude. I was reading, I was like, good night. I said, that's fucking creepy. Yeah. It's also a video game. I've never heard of that video game. Yeah. Grey Goo. Oh, it's on Steam. A science, uh, science fiction real-time strategy video game. Okay. Cool. All right, that seems pretty cool. 
so what i guess it's my turn now yeah all right so my topic for this week is the chicago tylenol murders have either of you heard about those yes yes oh man it is so crazy all right so this all starts early on the morning of september 29th 1982 A 12-year-old girl named Mary Kellerman, who lived near Chicago, woke up early that morning with a sore throat and a runny nose. Her parents gave Mary one extra-strength Tylenol and decided to keep her home from school that day. So shortly after taking the medicine, Mary goes into the bathroom. While in there, Mary's father heard the bathroom door close and then what sounded like something loud hitting the floor. So he decided to go check on his daughter to see if she was okay. He called out her name and knocked on the door, and she wasn't responding. So he opened the bathroom door and saw his daughter, Mary, lying on the floor unconscious. So, of course, her parents called the paramedics. They took her to the medical center in Elk Grove Village, which is a suburb of Chicago. So shortly after arriving there, Mary was pronounced dead. The deputy medical chief of that county was notified and Mary's body was ordered into the medical examiner's office for an autopsy because, of course, her age and the circumstances. Now, at this time, police started questioning the father as well as the medical examiner, and in the report, the only medications that were listed was that single extra-strength Tylenol. Well, everybody out in the world took Tylenol, so that didn't seem out of the ordinary to the police or the medical examiner and they kind of brushed it off. Now, I want you to put Mary's death on hold real quick, because we're going to transition to another person. So it's that same day, September 29th, 1982. A 27-year-old postal worker named Adam Giannis, who lived in Arlington Heights, Illinois, which is also a suburb of Chicago. That same morning that Mary had passed away, Adam, at the same time, wasn't feeling well either. He called into work sick, saying that he felt like he was getting a cold. So around noon, Adam left his home, picked up his kids from preschool, and then stopped at the store to get some Tylenol. Once he got home, he had some lunch, took two Tylenol, and went to lay down in bed. A couple of minutes later, Adam came into the kitchen staggering and collapsed. His wife, Teresa, called 911. The paramedics arrived and immediately took him to the Northwest Community Hospital. There at this hospital, Adam's heart stopped and they couldn't resuscitate him. Adam was pronounced dead. So two have passed away so far, Mary and Adam. And uh, later that afternoon on that same day, Adam's family got together and went to Adam's house to start talking about his funeral as well as kind of like mourning together. So Adam's younger brother, Stanley, was there at Adam's house with his family, but he started having some back pain. So Stanley asked his wife to get him some Tylenol. She went around looking in Adam's house and found some Tylenol, gave two to her husband, and she decided to take two as well because, of course, they'd been crying all day and she had a headache. Shortly after both of them took the Tylenol, they both ended up staggering around the room and collapsed. Of course, 911 was called. The paramedics showed up and took both of them to the hospital, 
where Stanley was pronounced dead and his wife was in serious condition and not expected to live. So shortly after that occurred, Chuck Kramer of the Arlington Heights Fire Department that was on the scene both that morning and afternoon when Adam died and Stanley died and his wife got picked up, he decided to call the deputy medical examiner. Chuck told the medical examiner, and I quote, Doctor, we got something unusual going on here. We had this family in Arlington Heights where one person died, and then the brother and sister-in-law came over, and now the brother is dead and the sister-in-law is in very serious condition and not expected to make it. So after Chuck Kramer of the fire department told the deputy medical examiner that, the medical examiner left his home, went straight to the office, and started looking into these deaths. They started to do a lot of tests, but those took time. And as they were waiting for the results of these tests, days passed by, and connections weren't made yet that it was the Tylenol that was killing these people. So, of course, more people kept taking the Tylenol, and they continued dying. So the next person to pass away was a 27-year-old Mary Lynn Reiner. Now, Mary at the time had just given birth to her fourth child, and she wasn't feeling well. Her husband, Ed, was taking care of their week-old baby, and Mary Lynn decided to take some Tylenol and lay down. So shortly after lying down, she started to feel weird. She got up, started to walk around, and collapsed on the floor. Ed, of course, called 911. And the ambulance arrived and rushed Mary to the Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield, Illinois, which is also a suburb of Chicago. Shortly after arriving there, she was pronounced dead. Now, shortly after that occurred, a 31-year-old Mary McFarland, who was a resident of Elmhurst, Illinois, which is also a suburb of Chicago, was at work and told some of her coworkers that she had a bad headache. She went into the back room at her work and took some Tylenol. Within minutes, she was on the floor unconscious. Of course, she was rushed to the hospital where she was pronounced dead. Now, at the same time as well, a 35-year-old flight attendant named Paula Prince had stopped at Walgreens near Chicago to buy some Tylenol. After she purchased it, she went home, took some Tylenol, and laid down. The next day... Paula was supposed to meet her sister for dinner, but she didn't. She also wasn't answering her telephone. The police showed up to Paula's apartment for a wellness check and found her body lying on the floor in the middle of the room. She was pronounced dead. So, at this time, the investigators made connection with the first four victims, Mary Adam, his brother Stanley, and Stanley's wife, made connections with them all dying. They had discovered that all four of them had taken Tylenol prior to the passing away. So they took all the bottles in for testing, and the medical experts suspected cyanide. And they decided, uh, while they were testing the bottles, to perform blood tests on the victims. The blood test came back positive for cyanide poisoning. It turned out that the capsules were not filled with Tylenol at all. They were filled with 65 milligrams of potassium cyanide. One ten thousandths of that would kill a person. So, of course, cyanide was found in the blood of the victims, confirming that they ingested these tainted tablets. 
And even if you took one of them, there was no surviving it. No one would have lived taking one of those tablets. Now, the police figured this out, the medical examiners figured this out, and they came to the conclusion that there was a murderer on the loose. So Johnson & Johnson, who was the manufacturer of Tylenol, was informed of this issue, and they issued a massive recall. Police went around the entire area of Chicago informing people to get rid of their Tylenol. And the manufacturers, Johnson & Johnson, started to work with the authorities to find out where the cyanide came from. The FBI, of course, got involved, and they started investigating. At the end of it, though, after a few months, the FBI stated that the manufacturers, Johnson & Johnson, were found not responsible, and that none of their employees were responsible for tampering with the Tylenol. They also stated that the bottles were tampered with after they left the facility and the manufacturer, that someone had emptied out the capsules, filled them with cyanide, and then placed them on the shelves. So, of course, this began a manhunt, but there was very few suspects, none of whom were linked to the murders by evidence. And all the authorities knew about the murderer is that he or she was likely living in the area of Chicago or visiting, and that he or she owned or had access to a vehicle. That's it. That's all they knew. And uh, they didn't have any leads. And to this day, no one has been officially charged for the crime. Mm, I thought somebody did get charged with the crime. Well, kind of, okay? There's someone who claimed he did it. So during the initial investigation, a man named James Lewis wrote a ransom letter to Johnson & Johnson claiming to be the Tylenol killer. He demanded $1 million in exchange for stopping the poisoning. Of course, the FBI found out about this and they investigated him and determined that James Lewis lived in New York and had no link to the Chicago events and was just trying to get money. So he was in New York at the time and he wasn't in Chicago. Because of this, uh, they still decided to charge James Lewis with extortion. And uh, y'all want to take a guess at how long of a sentence he got? A year. Three days. 20 years in prison. Oh, shit. Damn, okay. <laughs> yeah, he was released in 1995 after serving 13. But yeah. No, nobody's ever been officially charged for it. Um, in 1983, the U.S. Congress passed what was called the Tylenol Bill, making it a federal offense to tamper with consumer products. So do you remember a few years back when that viral video came out of that young kid licking the ice cream? Yep. Yeah, that was a federal offense because that was tampering with consumer products. Oh, I was thinking of a totally different murder. Oh. That they this woman did that with Excedrin. Ooh, Shit. I haven't heard of that. Yeah, the only way they caught her was they found like in these because she like put it in her husband's and then like went to the store and put it in there. And then the only way they caught her was because they noticed that there was fish tank, the little algae pill cleaner in it because she would grind it up in a mortar and pestle, and she did that with the cyanide. Sorry, that's why wow. I was like. I think I know, and that's why you're like, no, there's nobody. That's a good knowledge nugget. You know what they should have did? So it had to be some store that this person was near that they were putting the pills in there. So they should have had people, instead of throwing them, just throwing them away. Like, you know how they get rid of, like, needles and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. Store it in a box and have, I would say, like, the CDC or something like that, or at least the cops come by and pick up each one to organize it from which store. Then you can narrow it down. 
they started doing that. Yeah, during the investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, but before I hop into that, there's one more quick thing I want to say that in 1989, the FDA established federal guidelines for manufacturers to make all such products, such as drugs, tamper-proof. So this is why we have seals on medicines now. They didn't have seals back then? Nope. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's the only thing kind of good that came out of it. All right. So um, there's a couple theories. There's three of them that I have surrounding this Chicago Tylenol murders. The first hypothesis is that this was actually a pharmaceutical war. So the theory is that the pharmaceutical companies at the time were battling one another for market share, that some other pharmaceutical company had paid someone off to deliberately do this so that it would sabotage the brand of Johnson and Johnson and the other company could get more customers. Is there any proof to back this up? Not really. No, I couldn't find any. But I did find this fact, okay? Before this 1982 crisis, Johnson and Johnson Tylenol controlled more than 35% of the over-the-counter pain reliever market. Only a few weeks after the murders, that number plummeted to less than 8%. So they lost a giant market share. Hmm. Yeah. So this next theory is probably my favorite one. I never even thought about this until I read it and I was like, whoa, okay, this one is pretty good. This next theory is is a theory that revolves around who could have possibly been the murderer. And uh, this theory is that it was Ted Kaczynski, a.k.a. the Unabomber, who was responsible for these Tylenol murders. Is there any proof to back this up? Well, there kind of is. So on May 19th, 2011, the FBI requested DNA samples from the Unabomber in connection to the Tylenol murders. After they got the samples, they didn't release any other info about it and they weren't taking no questions. Now, Ted denied ever having possessed potassium cyanide. However, the first four Unabomber crimes happened in Chicago and its suburbs from 1978 to 1980. Now, get this. Ted Kaczynski's parents had a Chicago home in Illinois in 1982 when the murders happened, which is where he stayed. So the location fits. But that's the only thing that I have for to kind of place him. He was there in the area, but no really proof that he did it. Well, it would fit with what he talks about in his manifesto. It's not just yes. technology, it's medicine. And it, it wouldn't be the first time he talked about killing somebody. If you listen to his only taped interview with, with that reporter, he talked about how he wanted, he would see his neighbor in Montana and he would often hide in the bushes and look down the, ra- the barrel of his rifle and think about shooting her and her kids. Damn. But he just couldn't do it. And he is not a person to do the work himself, per se. He's not one that likes to get his hands bloodied in it. So, like when he sent all the bombs, he had a machine doing it for him. So it's not uncommon to think that he could have just tampered with a couple bottles and left. Because even though he placed it there, he's not really like forcing them to take it 
I mean, there's 90 freaking capsules in a damn bottle. Or 120. The probability of them, like, stumbling upon it or, you know, maybe not the purchaser, but, you know, somebody's like, oh, hey, my back's hurting. Can I get a Tylenol, bud? Yeah, and then takes it and then croaks over. Scary to think about that happened, you know? What if it's somebody, this is my theory, what if it's somebody that's being the copycat of Ronald Clark O'Brien? You ever heard of him? Who's Ronald Clark O'Brien? No. The Candyman, or the man who killed Halloween. Never heard of him. Yeah, never heard of him. You know, you know how they say, oh, you know, when you're little, your parents like, oh, check the candy. Yeah. He was convicted of killing four kids by putting potassium cyanide in pixie sticks. Oh, my God. When did this happen? From 1970 to 1974. He was executed on March 31st, 1984. Damn. There are crazy fanatics that try to copy a, a killer. Yeah, there is. Damn. It's funny how the parents always say, look out uh, for drugs in your kids' candy. Like, drugs are expensive. Who's going to be putting those in kids' candy, you know? Every year on the friggin' news for Halloween, oh, check your candy. Drug dealers are putting LSD in the kids' Why like, would they do that? Skittles and all that. I'm just like... Do they got that much money? <laughs> like, they could really do that? All right. So, I got one more theory to this. Um, okay. This last theory is that a disgruntled employee who was working at the Tylenol factory was the one who did this. The theory is that the person brought in the cyanide, which looks exactly like the Tylenol powder, before it gets put into the capsule. That the worker tossed the powder into the hopper, that the capsules are made in the factory line, which cause some of the Tylenol pills to have cyanide in it. Wouldn't they be able to test the thing? Because, you know, there'd be residue at least, right? Yeah. Unless so this theory of the disgruntled employee doing it and that is kind of like there's a theory that connects to this theory is that Johnson & Johnson covered it up that their employee did it to try to salvage their company. Is there any proof that... Johnson and Johnson tried to like cover this up because I mean, they did come out and immediately and tell everybody to pull all the medicine. And if they were trying to cover it up, wouldn't they not do that? Well, a former Johnson and Johnson employee named Scott Bartz published a book titled the Tylenol mafia. So in this book, Scott states that he spent three and a half years investigating this and made the claim that Johnson and Johnson a.k.a. the makers of Tylenol, and federal agencies steered the investigation in the wrong direction to avoid liability. He claims that Johnson & Johnson manipulated the facts surrounding the murders. So some of the Tylenol bottles that they got that had the cyanide in them, they had stamps on them, and these stamps have like numbers and letters. They state where it was manufactured at. Okay, so the reason Johnson & Johnson and federal agents say that it wasn't a disgruntled employee that put the cyanide in the capsules is because they're saying that each one of these bottles came from a, a different distribution facility. It came from, uh, or not a distribution facility, a facility that makes them. There was one that came from Round Rock, Texas, and another one that came from somewhere else. I forget what the name of it was. But Scott says in his book, that when you look at the stamps that's on the bottles, that they're altered. 
because one of the stamps has two letters and then four numbers, but the other bottle has four numbers and two letters, which it's supposed to be the other way, two letters and four numbers, because that's the way that the Code of Federal Regulations reads out that you have to stamp it, and that he claims that federal employees and federal agencies helped stop the bleed of Johnson & Johnson because some of them own stock in it, and they helped cover it up that it was actually an employee that did this from one manufacturing facility. So say like you buy like a shirt or something like that, you usually, or I'd probably say shoes, because I think I've seen it on shoes mostly. I haven't checked medicine. But they usually put like a QC sticker on it. Mm-hmm. That's for the person that actually checks it. So wouldn't these stamps or something like that identify who does it? Or is this like afterwards? No, the stamps were stamped on the bottle and they stated what manufacturing facility they came from and what date and lot they came from. Mm. How hard is it to get cyanide? That is not something that you just come across anymore. I'm not duck duck going that. But like it has to be hard. You have to be have like a chemist license. Because it's such a deadly, it's such a deadly poison. Uh, Seattle Times did an article. Deadly cyanide restricted, but it's not really hard to get. Uh-oh. It only takes a pinch, maybe less to kill. I know that when somebody's been poisoned by cyanide, though you can tell because you'll smell bitter almonds come from their mouth. Cyanide is used in all sorts of everyday cleaning processes from cleaning, refining, hardening metals to art printing, cement making, disinfecting, photo engraving, metal plating, soldering, and tanning leather. It is used in medical tests and to extract gold and silver from ore. So I guess the ability to get cyanide was very easy before the 1980, before 1986 because the pharmacy board um, in 1986, made it more difficult to buy over-the-counter capsules after uh, two South King County people, Nickel and Sue Snow, died from taking cyanide-laced capsules. Huh. The following year, they tightened up the law regarding the sale of cyanide, arsenic, and strychnine. Strychnine's horrible. You'll know if you if you'll know if you get poisoned with that. It has such a like god awful bitter taste. So I guess it was pretty easy before the uh, Tylenol. Hmm. The Chicago Tylenol deaths. That was my topic for this week. That's why I don't like taking the capsules. Yeah. I'll take the hard pill. That's it. Yeah, I take the hard pills. I don't I don't do capsules. For one, they the capsules I think taste nasty. And they like stick to the inside your mouth. I like to take the fish oil pills, cut them open and pour it over on my mashed potatoes as gravy. I want you I want you to go chew one up right now. No, that's disgusting. I was joking. That's absolutely disgusting. All right, Dan, what topic do you have for us this week? Just like the Patreon episode, the topics just get darker and darker. Oh, God. (laughs) God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ! When writing this up, I couldn't figure out how to start it off. So I'll just ask, have y'all heard of the Overtune Bridge in Scotland? No. Wait, wait. I think I have. Is that the one where the where the dogs jump off? Dogs jump off, right? Yeah. Thought it sounded familiar. AKA the dog suicide bridge. Oh my god. That was my topic. Because I found it kind of intriguing and how the fact that they still don't know why. But it's crazy to think. You know, you ask the people around there about how many dogs have actually left from the bridge. 
and it varies. They it ranges from like 50 to even 600 since the 1950s. But people say that 600 is a stretch, which I think if it was 600, it'd be way bigger case than it is. But still, even 50 is a lot. This bridge connects the Overton estate to the Garshik estate. And it was, wasn't built until 1895. And like the Garshik, I guess it's like the Garshik River, but it's like a 50 foot high bridge. And it just has like, you know, probably three or four feet tall walls on each side. But there's like little cuts to where you can like kind of stand there and look out over it. For some reason, it started in like the 1950s that if dogs would walk onto the bridge, like at first it'd be like normal. They wouldn't mind it. Then on a certain area of the bridge, it's like something would just take control. They would just turn and just jump off the bridge. One person stated that they'd be walking the dog and then all of a sudden the dog would stop, literally just turn real quick and then just try to go for it. Why would they keep walking their dog across that bridge? I don't know. People still, even to this day, still walk their dogs across this bridge because it's such a great little area to walk and all that. Apparently not for the dog. No. And that's what's crazy about it. The Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals had actually sent representatives out to investigate the bridge in the surrounding area to try to figure out why these dogs were doing this. And you know what's crazy about it? It seems to not only affect dogs. One of the representatives that went out there, he said they got to the spot where the dogs usually jump because it's like a certain spot. And this representative said that once he got there, he felt the urge that he should jump. Luckily, he didn't jump, but that was just enough right there for both representatives to be like, you know what? Screw this. We're out of here. Case closed. We're not investigating this shit no more. So they just left it. They're just like, we're not doing it. So it was just left alone. And that's like one of the crazy things is the fact that it doesn't seem to just affect dogs, but it does affect some humans, it seems. And, you know, you figure that, say, if a dog jumped off, it survived the fall and got hurt. Do you think that if you brought the dog back up to the bridge, do you think it'll make the same mistake again? Well, I don't know. It depends on the breed of the dog. Some dogs that they actually survived the jump, if they brought it back up to the top of the bridge, if it wasn't on a leash or something, it would try to run to that same spot and jump off again. And how high up is this bridge again? 50 feet high. Holy shit. Oh my God. And at the bottom, it's like a, it's a very shallow river, it seems. And there's jagged rocks at the bottom. So it's like these dogs would, if they got brought back up, some of them would try to jump back off again. Or if they came back again for a second visit just to be walking, they would still try to jump in that same spot again. So something was making them want to jump off. So it was definitely something strange about the bridge in the area there. But no one could really figure out why. And you know how I said that it wasn't just, you know, the dogs. There was also a crazy story about in 1994, this 32-year-old father threw his own baby over the bridge. And th his reasoning was because he thought that his baby was the Antichrist. And now the baby didn't die until the following day. So it survived the fall, but passed away in the hospital. And of course, the father was declared insane and committed to an institute. It's already odd enough with him doing that. But it's even weirder that he threw his baby off at the same spot that all the dogs jump off at. So it's like the certain spot on the bridge has some kind of weird force or something that 
makes these dogs want to jump off. And of course, you know, they're like, dogs don't commit suicide. Suicide is supposedly a human, like, emotion or type thing, is what they were going through. So they honestly cannot really figure out 100% on why these dogs were doing it. Government testing? See, I do have a couple theories. I didn't have government testing, though. Not government testing, but probably chemical testing. Okay. My theory would be probably chemical testing, but I'll go into that at the very end. The first theory I have that I found, I should say, is that there is some paranormal activity that happens at the mansion in Long Bridge. Lord Overton, a.k.a. John Campbell White, he passed away in 1908, pretty much, what, see, five, 13 years after, 13 years after the bridge was completed, and his wife stayed in the house until she passed away in 1931. Now, people said that they have seen a grieving ghost dressed in a, like a white dress that is in the area, and they believe that it is the ghost of the widow, pretty much Lady Overton. And they believe that for some reason, she is the one that makes these canines jump off the bridge, which I don't know why she would target dogs, but people believe that it was some type of paranormal thing that this ghost was somehow making these dogs. And sometimes when people walk on there, feel this urge to want to jump off the bridge. That theory right there they do say they see like this ghost in the windows of the mansion and stuff, which it's now like a, I think a bed and breakfast type thing, which they don't really say much about the ghost, but yet people say they see the ghost walking, like when they're walking outside, they see in the windows that this ghost is there. So that's the first theory I found. Not really too plausible. Kind of interesting though, paranormal. I'm like, all right. The second theory is more logical, they say, is that an animal habitatic expert by the name of David Sexton explored the area around the base of the bridge and his findings showed that it is a huge nesting area for mice and minks and that the most of the dogs that have jumped off the bridge are of the long snout breeds you know like Labradors Pointers yeah German Shepherds stuff like that the ones with long snouts they suspect that it's the smell of the male mink's urine that is luring the dogs to jump off the bridge because they smell it and it's this scent overloads their sensory to which it sets them off to where oh I got to find out what this is and it cuts off like they're all like a like rational thinking so of course you know how dogs they can't like say this I think the sides are like four feet tall they can't see what's on the other side of the wall so they just pretty much jump over thinking you know there might be solid ground on the other side but there's nothing there and they fall straight down that was their logical reasoning for it. I kind of found something that goes against that because there is a local hunter by the name of John Joyce, and he said he's been hunting that area for like 50 years. And he said that not once has he ever seen a minx in the area. And the only thing that's crazy is the fact that why is it only just this bridge? If there's minx like all over the area, like these animal experts says, you know, it's just this one spot that these dogs jump off of. You figure if they're, the dog's smell power is like 100 times more than ours. So why would it be in this one spot that they would jump off the bridge? If anything, you know, on the sides of the bridge or something like that. Hmm. So I don't quite believe that. That just doesn't seem logical to me. Because they would probably, I would say they would probably smell that before they even got to the bridge. 
but that was their, you know, reasoning for it. Reminds me of that forest in Japan where people go and hang themselves. This was actually connected to, well, not connected, but one of the stories I found, they connected this with that because there's, you know, so the suicide forest and this is the suicide bridge. Okay. What if, hear me out. You know how when you cut grass, you get that nice crisp smell and you're like, mm, I cut that grass. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's the grass basically releasing a scent, screaming like, oh, Jesus Christ, I've been cut, I've been hurt. You know, <laughs> they, they say that's what that smell supposed to be. Yeah. What if these plants around the area are releasing a smell that only affects dogs? That's driving them. Kind of like the movie The Happening. You remember? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Now, if you're, if you're a listener and you don't know what The Happening is, you want to explain the plot of The Happening real quick? Okay, spoiler alert. The Happening is about the plant life on Earth, basically the Earth itself, revolting against the human population because we're overpopulating and we're doing too much damage to it. So release it, these plants release a chemical in the air that are causing humans to kill themselves randomly. And it doesn't affect everyone. It only affects a certain amount of people. So maybe that's what this is doing, because notice how it's not, you know, short snout, you know, little... I mean, there probably have been little dogs that, like, scamper up there, but, you know, we're talking about dogs that are known for, like, their, you know, sense of smell. Yeah. Why don't they take a air sample of the area? And just do tests of the air sample to figure out what, what's in the air. Maybe they've never thought of it. Well, the two representatives from the Society of Animal Cruelty Prevention, they went out there, started to do their investigation, and one of them started feeling the urge to jump off the bridge himself or themselves. Oh, Jesus. So they're just like, we're not doing it. You know, we're not taking this chance of wanting, you know, throwing ourselves off. But hmm. I do like that theory, Hans. That actually, yeah. that kind of connects into my theory at the end. So I'll, I'll go ahead and read this last theory I found. This mm-hmm. one's interesting. I'm not sure how solid it is. They say that these canines that are jumping off the bridge, they're super close to their owners. And they actually feel what their owners are feeling. So that the, these owners are supposedly the ones having these suicidal thoughts. And they are putting out that aura that is being shared with their canine canine companion and that these canine companions of theirs are the ones actually taking the action to do so. So they're the ones that instead of their owners jumping to their desk, these dogs are doing it. Okay. All right. Spiritual dogs. Well, have you ever noticed like, Aaron, you're not a dog person, but you're a cat person. Yeah, I'm a cat person. When you're like sad or say sick or something, does your cat come up to you and like stay with you? He's always on me, 24-7. He's like a little baby. He wants me to hold him all the time. Yeah, you don't count. Hans, you have a dog, right? Yeah. When you're sad or, or like sick, not feeling good, your dog comes up and cuddles with you, right? Oh, she comes up and then she hides her face in shame because she saw her master cry. See, and I noticed, you know, my little Yorkie, when she was still alive, if I wasn't feeling good or I was sad, she'd jump up and she'll just lay right on me. Usually she's off doing her own thing and all that, but when I'm sad or I'm not feeling good, she's right there. And of course, you know, they have dogs that are trained to like, uh, was it like seizures and all that stuff? Like when you're like, something's going wrong with your body. Yeah. They can detect that shit and let you know. So 
I mean, I kind of see this theory as it's possible, but I don't know about like the suicidal thoughts. I don't know how that would be put out to where the dogs feel it other than being depressed. Yeah. So that that was a very interesting theory. And I honestly hope that's not true. Yeah. Because that's that's pretty sad. Yeah. But to move forward, my theory kind of connects with Hans's, but it's not not about plants, but chemicals. So the Lord Overtune, Mr. John White, he was actually partners with his father in the Shawfield Chemical Works production of potassium dichromate. The hell is that? Which is a common inorganic chemical reagent most commonly used as an oxidizing agent in laboratories and industrial applications. Okay. So what I read up is with all these uh, hexavalent chromium compounds, they're actually very, 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 very harmful to your health. And that, of course, this reminded me of the Karen Silkwood episode. So this bridge is in Dumbarton, Scotland. This place is in a, like another town over. But the regulations and stuff on this was very lax, just like the Karen Silkwood episode. And that some of these, I believe, chemicals actually polluted the waters and stuff. So I don't know if, like, say, these dogs, you know, may have, say, drunk some of the water or something at the bottom or something like that, or, like, could smell this stuff, and that it actually, they caught a hold of it and they kind of were drawn to it. Mm-hmm. You know, they did get in trouble, and, like, the production at Shawfield ceased in the 1960s because of this stuff. Safety regulations were bad and all that. Like, a lot of people were, pretty much this stuff right here causes cancer. And there were no safety regulations. So a lot of people were pretty much sick from this working at the factories and stuff because they weren't wearing any safety like protection at all. And this stuff was getting out everywhere. Damn. So I'm wondering, you know, either it's in the water or say Mr. White, Lord Overtune, possibly bringing stuff home to work on. I don't know. Maybe a company was dumping it under the bridge. Yeah, because I mean, he was he was like into politics, huge religious guy and all that. Like, I don't know what kind of corrupt stuff he could have gotten into. It just seems kind of weird. I think he did die of cancer, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's cancer at age 69. But yeah, it's just, I don't know. It was kind of fishy. Yeah. Man, it's a crazy topic. It was kind of depressing to write, but I want to get the, get awareness out for these dogs. Yeah. I like that. And that this bridge is still, this bridge is still open for people, people to take their pets, their companions without a leash still. My, I'm not taking Gollum out there, my cat. People still take their companions out there without a leash, knowing that for some reason that it's known as Dog Suicide Bridge. Hmm. Maybe they just want their animals to die. Heartless, man. Well, I mean, hey, there is people out there like that. There are people out there like that. And that said, you know, I know there's one lady, I forgot her name. Sorry, lady, if you ever listen to this. But she's like trying to, you know, show awareness for this stuff, too. Because you don't want no one to lose their pet like she did. Mm. Sad. It is sad. And, like, I'm actually kind of highly upset with the Scottish Society of Animal Cruelty Prevention or whatever. Yeah, I get that he didn't want to jump off the bridge himself, but you just closed the investigation down because you had a feeling like that. Or they got talked to by some undercover agency and told them to close it down. I mean, probably got paid off. Like, hey, just take this, close the investigation, say there was nothing to be found. Yep. No, I, I actually wonder if they did, like, if anybody, even the animal inspector or something like that, took air samples. Because all he did was he said he found, like, a nest area for mice and minks, which 
supposedly there have not been any minks there by what the hunter says. Well, it's a very interesting topic. Depressing. And, uh, yeah, a little depressing. Pretty interesting. Uh, Hans, pretty interesting. Pretty scary. Mine's pretty depressing. Yeah. Uh, overall, I think it was a good Theories Thursday for regular. Very dark. Yeah, just like our uh, just like our Patreon Theories oh Thursday this week. <laughs> Maybe even an, ours, Patreon's probably darker than this. Actually, yeah, it is. A lot darker. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, that's the end of the episode this week. I guess we're going to roll on to um, our On the Scene. So if you aren't familiar with On the Scene, it is where a individual goes out onto the street and interviews random people to ask them about current conspiracy happenings in our world. You, the listener, yes, you can submit your own On the Scene. All you got to do is get your phone or microphone and go out into the streets and interview individuals and ask them questions make sure it's less than 90 seconds long or less than 120 seconds and then take that uh, audio recording and send it to one of our email addresses it can be aaron at theories of the third kind hans at theories of the third kind or dan at theories of the third kind dot com and uh you'll be featured on uh, an episode all right so this Weeks on the scene is from Harry. So we're going to play that right now. This is Harry from Theories of the Third Kind, Voices from the Street, and I'm with... Mike Rizzo. I'm uh, 36 years old. Great to be here. Great to be alive. Okay, Mike, let me ask you. With everything that you see on CNN and all these current news sources where they're talking about all these unidentified aerial phenomenon, Uh, what's your personal opinion on it? Uh, well, I think, I think, uh, aliens have been around, you know, and I think, uh, these things have been kind of true. It's fucking crazy and weird, but I kind of love it. I think they've always been living amongst us. I do think so. Now, do you think, uh, supposedly this month they're going to do a bit of disclosure? Do you think it's going to be the real disclosure or they're going to hold a lot back? Um, I hope it's the real thing, but I would say they're probably going to hold some shit back. Do you have any question as to whether or not the films that we're seeing is actually something from you know, space, or maybe it's tech that we have that we're not admitting that mm, we do have. I think it's probably some tech that we have, maybe, yeah, that we're not admitting to it, right? I think so. Is it something that consumes your thoughts every day? Uh, I think about it often, yeah, not, not, not every day, but probably, like, once a week. Yeah, it's on my mind a lot. Do you feel that they pose a threat to humanity? Um, I don't know, maybe a little bit, yes. Okay, one last question. Sure. Do you think that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone? Oh, definitely not. Hell no. Based on what? Just based on the way it all went down. Multiple gunshots, the angle, the trajectories. Fuck no, that was multiple people. All right, and there you have it. Voices from the street. That's right. Very nice. Yeah, I like that. That was good. I love the dude was just very open to it. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Oh, straight from Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> Harry did a good job in the interview. He did. I'm proud of him. See his journalist skills coming out right there. Yeah. I'm proud of you, Harry. I want to hear some more. That's right. Harry on the streets. Harry on the streets. All right. So for this week's shout outs, we're going to move our social media shout outs to next week because we're kind of pressed on time this week. Uh, but we do have some Discord shout outs. Um, I got a couple... I want to give a shout out to uh, Sneak Shikashitza 4. 
pretty sure I pronounced that name wrong. Sneak, S-K-H-A-J-I-I-T-4. Shout out to you. I love you and I'm proud of you. Shout out to Arnold, Slickers, Harry, Carolyn, Discordian, um, everybody that's up on the Discord, several, Justine, uh, CJ, Mr. G, OG Dell, uh, Azri, all you guys, girls, aliens, all y'all are awesome, amazing. Thanks for showing us love. We're showing it right back to you. Just want to give y'all a quick shout out. All right, Hans, what do you got for this week's uh, Discord shout outs? Shout out to the uh, new newbie, Jamie Luz. Thanks for joining the chat the other day. Nice to hear from you. Welcome to the family. Ryson, I loved your story that you sent me in an email, and I love that you reached out, that I responded. Um, next shout out goes to Thin Glizzy's wife, the big Glizzy. Happy freaking birthday. So there you go. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. Nice. What about you, Dan? What do you got? Uh, shout out to Dale, OG Dale, of course. You know, gotta love him. The friendliest guy I know. Seriously, he's really friendly. It's awesome to have someone like that in the Discord. Uh, of course, shout out to Harry, Arnold, Pete. Oh, yeah, Pete. Forgot about Pete. Sorry about that, Pete. I love you. Yeah. I still gotta watch Dog Soldiers with them. They, they keep me up watching UFO and ghost videos and stuff from YouTube. And then, like, We'll watch it and then we'll kind of discuss what it could be, how it happened or something like that. It's actually really fun. Yeah. So if you aren't on uh, our Patreon, join our Patreon and you get an automatic invite to our Discord. And in our Discord, we have movie nights and people jump in the lounge and you can watch the movies that somebody's streaming and, you know, discuss it with them if you want. Or you can just watch it and just listen. Yes. And we might even pop in. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Discord is a like, privilege a bonus just saying yeah don't go in there and start trolling individuals and creating a bunch of drama right then uh shout out to kaiser soze got you buddy and then last shout out is for tasha she wanted me to shout out to the one who beats her drums milton banana hammock the third oh my god (laughs) (laughs) all right well, uh, y'all got anything else you want to add to today's episode before we uh, roll it out? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. good. I'm already depressed enough. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for all your support. You were all amazing, every single one of you. So with that being said, Hans and Dan, you want to roll us out? Sure. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone. <laughs>